Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. That is probably the most familiar and well-known of the parables of Jesus. I would be very surprised if everyone in this room has not at some point in their life heard someone preach on the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, can I just see a show of hands? How many of you have heard a message on this parable before in your life? Okay. So I won't go into every detail of the story. I won't belabor the narrative itself. Um, but I want to draw out some important observations, some very key themes about this. And you will pick up the general sense of the story as we go. In order to appreciate the real meaning of the parable of the lost sons, you have to understand the context out of which it arose. In other words, what was going on when Jesus began to tell the story? Because that really is at the heart of understanding what the whole thing means. And you, in order to understand that, you've got to go back to the beginning of chapter 15, where the, the parable exists. And here's what was happening. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Now, you've got to understand, in that, in that culture, um, when you eat with someone, it is a way of saying, I legitimize, I accept this person as they are. When you eat with someone, it's more than just sitting next to them at a table. It is saying, I'm inviting you into my life. I look at you and see everything you are, and that's all right with me. Hang out with me. Be a part of my life. And the religious leaders were not so troubled by the way that sinners felt about Jesus, but they were so troubled by the way Jesus felt about sinners. And they began to grumble, and it was seeing this, because think about this. The ones grumbling the most about people far from God were the ones who were supposed to be the servants of God. They were supposed to be the spiritual leaders of Israel, and they were the ones most put off by people who needed God in their lives. And so it's because of this observation that Jesus begins to tell the story. And the whole point of the story is to expose their hearts and show them, this is your heart, and this is the heart of God your Father, and those two hearts could not be more different. I'm convinced that the vast majority of those who follow Jesus have grossly underestimated the love of God for people. Even when we say God loves us, I think we really fall short of understanding just how much God loves us. And so I want to trace out in this story three movements. The first, and I think deservedly so, is the focus on the first lost son. And I say first because there's more than one lost son in this story. This first lost son is the focal point of the story because his actions are so despicable and rude and because his suffering and pain are so well-deserved. It's a classic moral story of someone who breaks the rules and gets burned for doing it. And because we're reading this in the year 2013 in the United States of America, the cultural impact of the story is a bit lost on us. 
I, I won't belabor, I'll just say this. Anyone hearing this story in Jesus' day would not have been able to stay emotionally neutral. This is a story that is so offensive, and the, the actions of this younger son are so bold and rude and disrespectful uh, people would be spitting, throwing things, just hearing the story. It makes, have you ever watched a movie and a character made you so upset you couldn't sit still? Um, I've experienced that a couple times watching movies, especially watching Korean dramas. Uh, so I don't watch them anymore. You just get so upset. You're like, what? And you can't just sit there and watch it. You've got to throw things. You've got to walk around. You, oh, man, I, I don't know if I can watch any more of this. It's that kind of story. There's no way you can sit and listen and go, huh. How interesting. You are in it right away because this younger son was a horrible human being. It says that this younger son, he comes to the father, listen, while the father is still alive. Most of us have a hard time talking to our parents about writing a will. Have you ever tried to talk to your parents? Uh, you know, you've worked hard all your life. You should probably put a will together just so that the government doesn't take everything you've worked for. And what do your parents say? I'm not dead yet. Come on, you know, like, and they don't want to get jinxed. They think they they have the superstition that they write a will. They're going to die next week, and so a lot of people don't even want to talk about it in advance. This kid comes to his dad and goes, "Listen, I know you're getting old, but you're not dying. You keep eating vegetables. You're healthy. You're jogging. I need to move on with my life, Dad. Can you just give me what I would have inherited if you croaked, and let me just kind of move on with things." Do you realize what he's saying to his dad is, die already. i got to move on with my life. And I can't do it until I get my hands on the money you've been storing up for me. Now, right there, it's offensive even to us now. But this would have caused apoplectic fits of rage and offense in the original audience. They can't even believe this is happening. And here's even the worst part of the story is the dad agrees. If you're hearing the story, you're expecting a smackdown of the century. You just want to beat this kid down. Are you crazy? But this dad breaks all convention, and he goes, really, if that's what you want, here you go. And it says that he divided his estate between his sons. By Jewish tradition, the older of the two brothers would have gotten two-thirds of the inheritance, and the younger would have gotten one-third. And so the older brother does get twice as much as the younger, but they both basically take their dad's estate while he's still alive and split it among themselves. No sooner does he get his hands on this money than he really reveals what he wanted. He didn't just want the money. He wanted his freedom from his father. And so not many days after getting the money, he gathered everything he had. It seems to me that he'd been planning this for a while. And it says in a very interesting um, turn of phrase, he took a journey into a far country. In other words, it doesn't matter which land he went to because it wasn't a, an issue of which land he went to. It doesn't say he went to Vegas or he went to L.A. It just says he went wherever his dad was not. He went far from where his father was because what he really wanted was to live his life away from the authority and the prying eyes and the interference of a father who needed to know what his life was about. Basically, what he said was, give me my money so I can go and finally get out from under your eyeballs and under your hand so that I can live my life the way I want to live it, free of your sighs and your rolling eyes and your words of, of conviction. I just want to do what I want, and I don't want anyone 
to say anything to me about it. I really believe when I was younger, that's what I really wanted. And when my parents dropped me off on campus the first day of college, I was emancipated. And yet what I found was it wasn't quite what I thought it was going to be. And I wasn't quite as ready for that as I thought I was. But that's a heart that's in a lot of people, is that they really believe their true happiness and freedom lies outside of the authority and the watchful eye of their father. And so he goes out, and he takes life into his own hands, and he did whatever he felt like doing. It says, in fact, that he spent his entire property in reckless living. Now, later on, his brother conjectures it was probably prostitutes because he has an idea of what his brother is like. He's a younger brother of mine. I know exactly how he blew all his money. It doesn't say specifically. It just says this is not the way anyone should spend his father's inheritance. And so he spends it all fairly quickly. And no sooner does that happen than a terrible famine hits the land. So here it is, the perfect storm. He blows all his cash He's got nothing to show for it because it's what we call dissipation. You know, if you buy a house or you buy some stock, you got something to show for that money. But when you spend it all in reckless living, all you have is bad memories. And even those memories are fuzzy. And at the end, you've got no money and lots of regrets. And so that's what this guy did. He went to the regret store and he bought in bulk, right? He just bought tons of regrets. And at the end of it, when the famine hits, he can't even eat. And so he hires himself out to a local farmer, and he takes a job which no self-respecting Jew would ever take. He's feeding pigs. Pigs were unclean animals, so you don't even want to be near the pigs. And he's down right in the grime, the muck of it, and he's feeding the pigs slop. Any of you ever been on a pig farm, seen what slop is? Okay, so, I mean, this is pig slop. It looks a bit like diarrhea, um, It looks like what comes out of the exit in a human being, and a pig looks at that and goes, mmm, mmm, and he's eating it, and he's just shoveling this slop, and he's so hungry that he looks at this pig slop and goes, oh, that looks really good. But because there was a famine and the pig needed to eat in order to provide food for others, he was lowest in line, and if he ever tried to take a little spoonful of the slop, he gets smacked down. And so what it says in the text is he was dying just to eat what the pigs were eating, and yet nobody cut him a break. Nobody would give him anything to eat. Now, usually when you hit rock bottom, you do a little soul searching. And it's often at that point in our lives that many of us make the most important and meaningful decisions of our lives. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I I would be willing to bet that a number of us sitting here had a come-to-Jesus moment at some point in our lives when we lived any way we wanted and realized what it was costing us. And it was at the point of rock bottom that we made a decision, I need to go home. And that's what he does. This is, I think, the truest definition of home is it's where you instinctively go when there's nowhere else to go. I really think that that's the definition of home is that place your heart yearns for when you're so lost and so without hope, you think, where can I go for refuge? Is there a safe place left for me, a place where they have to open the doors because of who I am to them? And that's what we call home. And I, it's my hope and prayer that all of us who are raising children now would provide for our children growing up an innate sense that that's who we are to them and what our presence in their lives represents. 
is a place of safety called home. That when you hit the bottom of your life's barrel, you can always come to this place. And he makes a decision. I will go home. And when I go home, I, this guy at least had come to his senses. And he said, I give up any idea that I have a right to be my father's son. I have clearly forfeited that right, but here's what I'll do. I will beg him for a job. If I got to work for anyone, I'd rather work for my dad than for this inconsiderate farmer in a land filled with famine. And so he goes home with this whole spiel. You know, he's got this whole speech all lined up. Father, I have, I've sinned before heaven and, and against you. I have no right to be your son. He's got this whole speech laid out, and he's going to go back with tail tucked between his legs and grovel for a chance to be reinstated into his father's household as one of his hired hands. This first lost son represented so many people in the culture and the society of Jesus' time. People who knew everything about religion, about morality, about God, but in their hearts, what they longed for was freedom from all these rules. Freedom from anybody clucking their tongues or rolling their eyes disapprovingly towards them. They said, why can't we just live the way we decide to live? Why should I have to endure the scorn, the guilty feelings, the sense of failure? Why can't I just do whatever comes to me and have nobody else express their opinion? And that is one way to get lost from God, is to see God as somebody who wants to imprison you and bind you in your freedoms. And and a lot of people get lost by believing in their hearts, if I could just get away from all of this, I would finally come to life. I would finally experience everything that my parents and my friends have been hiding away from me. I would really start to live. These people... The the first lost son represented the tax collectors and the sinners that were coming to Jesus. They were people who were lost because of their pride and because of their poor decisions. They had gotten themselves lost believing that they were finding themselves. As a pastor, I've talked to dozens and dozens of such people who found themselves really far from God reeling, spinning. They couldn't figure out which way was up and they had landed in that place Because the first step of that journey was, i got to just get away from all of this. All my life, my parents have been dragging me to church. All my life, I've been a good kid going to Sunday school. And for what? I don't know anything about the world. I don't know how to spend money. I don't know how to live. I don't know how to dance. I'm going to get away from here and finally live. And I've talked to so many people who ended up in a very lost place because they decided life would happen when they finally left their father. Now, if Jesus decided to end the story at this point, the Pharisees and scribes who were grumbling would have been very, very happy. They would say, oh, Jesus, you're not such a bad guy after all. This was an excellent story because isn't this the way religion works? God gives you rules. You you look at his face and go, no, I don't like your rules. And you go to a far country and you get exactly what you deserve. This is the way the Pharisees understood the world they lived in. And so far, so good, this story is just scratching that itch on their back. Didn't this rebellious and disrespectful son finally go out away from the father and get exactly what he deserved? And hearing that he was shoveling slop to the pigs and dying to eat some of that, I could just picture them going, yes, 
That's exactly what should happen to all of those who disregard God. And that's, in fact, the exact heart that they had when they looked at these tax collectors and sinners. Oh, now you want some mercy. Now you come groveling, crawling back to God after all of your profligate living, all the reckless immorality you engaged in. You have made your beds now lie down and sleep in them. And if I can be honest, I think that's the way a lot of people's hearts are. Have you noticed that we rarely compare ourselves to people better than us? We usually compare ourselves to people a few notches down to go, (laughs) at least I'm not them. And it feels good to look at people who are making mistakes in places you're not and to say, well, that's what happens when you live like that. We have this instinctive self-righteousness where when somebody makes a bad choice, I mean, listen, if you get sick, if, if you get laid off because of the economy, if you suffer because of no fault of your own, then we have compassion, don't we? Hey, what do you want to do? It's the economy, stupid. You know, we got to take care of this person. Hey, we had, he had no choice. Uh, somebody else did this to him. But when somebody does something wrong, especially when you warn them, I mean, listen, have you guys ever warned your, your friend, hey, please don't marry that person? You don't know what you're getting into. That's bad news. And they marry him, and then they whine all day long until finally it ends. You're like, listen, shut up. We try to spare you of this, but you made your own decision. And how do you feel in those moments when someone you try to guide into a better life obstinately makes the wrong choices and has to eat the result of that, the bitter cake that they, they baked by their own decisions. When we encounter someone like that, there is a general response most of us will have. What do you want us to do? That's what you get. We try to warn you, but you didn't listen, and now, and you hear this in parents all the time. So little compassion. Just, I told you what to do, and this is what happened when you don't, and you didn't go to bed when you're supposed to, now you're all tired, and see, see how cranky you are? <laughs> Yeah, mom, dad, that's the kid being cranky, right? How are we when somebody makes all the wrong moves and is now right in the middle of it, sitting on a pile of their own droppings going, wow, I wish I weren't here. It's like uh, Jeannie and her sister, at Halloween after trick-or-treating when they were little, Jeannie, with no thought of the future, would gorge herself on all the candy she collected. And her sister, Cindy, would save it until next year. And how would you feel if you're Cindy and after Jeannie gorges herself the first day and all her candy, she's got nothing left. She goes, can I have some of your candy? If I'm Cindy, I'd be thinking something like this. No! You had just as much candy as me, but you're too stupid to save any. And now you have nothing left. Too bad for you. What are we like when we see people in a mess that they've made for themselves? And it's precisely at that moment that what we really think about God comes to the front. Our understanding of the heart of God is never more clear than we're in the presence of someone who is suffering from self-inflicted wounds. 
Don't gauge your compassion by sending a $38 check to Pablo in Bolivia because he lives in the poorest country. That is not where your greatest compassion is manifested. I'm glad you're doing that. Don't stop. But your real understanding of the heart of God is demonstrated when Pablo decides to rob grocery stores, gets arrested, and wants you to bail him out. Pablo, seriously? And it's at that moment that you begin to show whether you have understood the heart of this God that you say you follow. So if Jesus ended the story here, the Pharisees are giving each other high fives and Jesus is now the best teacher in the land. But to their horror and shock, he doesn't end the story there. The story now takes a very unexpected and disturbing turn. And it puts the focus now on the father. And the father is nothing like any father in Middle Eastern history. This father in so many ways behaves differently than he should. And he messes with the minds of people. Because these Pharisees aren't stupid. They know that this Jesus tells these strange parables where nothing is what it seems. Everything stands for something. They're like, wait a minute. Okay, so we know who the younger son is. Is he saying that this is God? And if he's describing God to the father in the story, then the Pharisees conclude this Jesus has no idea what God is like. Because it says that he arose and as he was coming to his father, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. What does that tell you right there? You can't see someone who's a long way off unless you're scanning the horizon looking for them. He didn't see his son when he rang the doorbell. I don't think they had doorbells, you know, when he, whatever, clanked the symbol on the door. And I don't think that's when he finally realized his son was back. He was looking for his son. And that's something we have to understand. We, we're steeped in this idea of a seeker kind of culture where we assume there are all these lost people looking for God, seeking for God, and God's playing peekaboo. He's hiding. And we as a church go, oh, come on, seekers. God's hiding right there. He's right here. God, come on, stand up seriously. Show yourself. That's what we think, is that lost people are seeking God, and God's hiding away, and we're supposed to connect the two. That's completely the opposite of the truth. In fact, Romans 3 tells us there's nobody who seeks God. Nobody. We are not the ones looking for God. God is the one looking for us. And that's why I know some of you have come to this church for over a year and you have yet to feel any inkling of appetite for God. You endure the sermon, hope that there's a few good jokes or stories peppered in there. You hope that the singing is kind of upbeat and that it's short. And then you can go out for lunch afterwards. And so far, you can't say in your heart, there's been any component of genuinely seeking God. I wish there were, but even if there isn't, do you know what? God has been seeking you. The heart of our father is not that he says from the the safety of his living room, well, bunch of jerks, they take their inheritance, run off. I'll wait until they come groveling back to me. He is heartbroken over sons and daughters who stray away from him and are lost to him. And he doesn't sit behind his gates waiting for them to come knocking. He stands on the walls and scans the far horizon for any glimmer, any hope that something has shifted in their hearts and they're drawn back home. He's hoping that the failure, the misery, the suffering that they endure far away from him would drive them not to despair, but to return home. 
He doesn't have a five-hour lecture waiting for them. He doesn't have penance for them to do. His heart is totally unexpected. And I think this is the point at which we have to confront. Most of us have totally misunderstood and underestimated the heart of God the Father for his children. This father not only looks for his son, hoping, longing for the return, but when he sees him, he hikes up his robes and he runs. And I'm sure you've heard this in sermons before. In those days, older men never ran anywhere. It's undignified. It's childish looking. It's me, them. So they would say, all right, I'm in a hurry. Don't worry, I'm getting there. You got to walk like you're in charge of things. Only a little kid goes, oh my gosh, and they run. And so for this father to run, that was further. And so it's like, this kid should have to make the long journey home. He should have to think about the error of his ways all the way back. And when he gets to the door, he should have to sit through a very long lecture and a long process of jumping through hoops just to get reinstated to the family. I mean, put it in your own context. What if this were your son? What if it were your daughter? Uh, Mom, Dad, I'm just going to run off with Spike here. I just, you know, I know you don't like him. I know he's dangerous, but I love him. And after years and years of just horrific living, arrests, drug abuse, abortion after abortion, she comes home and says, it didn't work out with Spike. Is my room still available? Let me ask you honestly, if this were your kid and not some story, what would be really in your heart? Yes, there would be heartbrokenness, but how quickly would you restore that child into your heart? What would be the strongest emotion that you feel? Now, it's easier when I say, what if it were your kid? When I say, what if it was some kid, it's easier to go, yeah, you know, they'd have to learn a lesson. But when it's your kid, you begin to understand a little bit better the heart of God for us. See, if it's your kid coming back, I'd be like, let me give you some advice. Um, Here's what I would say to him when he's coming back. But if it's my kid, I have a whole different emotional profile because I'm heartsick over how far away my kid was. When my kid comes home, the, the strongest emotion is likely to be gladness that he's still alive and he's known to come home. He not only accepts this boy back, but he does another really, really shocking thing. He treats him with honor. He doesn't say, go to your room. I'll talk to you next week. I'm just glad you're alive. Just let me process this a little bit. That's what I would probably say. Let me process this a little bit, which is the way of saying, let me just get rid of all the hatred I feel for you right now. When I don't want to kill you, I'll come talk to you in your room. Instead, he says, and you could see it. His son is beginning the speech that he had rehearsed all the way home. I'm going to start with this. Father, I have sinned before heaven and against you. You know, this is such a, a, a noble sounding speech. And before he even gets past the first line, his dad goes, shut up, shut up with all that. You're home. That's all I care about. And he shouts orders to his servants. Go and bring the best robe. Put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. Presumably they washed him off a little first because he probably stank. And then they said, let's throw a party. In other words, he's not just saying, yeah, you can come back. He's saying, you can come back as my son again. The very thing you really thought was done, hopeless, you couldn't even dare to ask for it, the father instantly 
brings him back to a place he never expected he could go. Now, is this the way that you think of God, your heavenly father? And I'm not just talking about theoretically in general. I'm I'm talking about when you have blown it. When you are at your lowest point. When you have done that thing which you're so sick of doing. The thing which you are so sick of in yourself that every time you think of this failing, you hate yourself. You can no longer even muster up the audacity to, to ask for forgiveness. You're just so tired of this subject. For so many people in our culture today, it's addiction to pornography. It's sex addiction. And that low moment after you have violated yourself and you go, I can't even say sorry anymore. I'm just so, what is my problem? And you're filled with self-loathing. And then someone says, we got to go. It's time for church. And right there in your, in your heart of hearts, what is your feeling about God? How do you feel he thinks about you at that moment, looks at you? What do you think he's waiting to say to you? Because it's right there at that point that it becomes clear whether you have understood the heart of God or not. I think the point of the story is to tell us you think you know God, but you don't really. That this is not even a parable about the sons. It's a story about a father. And it's a story about a father. Everyone thinks they know, but no one really knows. And, it, you know, as I was writing this sermon this week, another thought, a parallel thought just came to me. My dad's not getting any younger, and I realized something. Everything I think I know about my dad was mainly formed when I was still a stupid kid. I lived in his house under his roof And I thought I had my dad figured out at all of 16 to 18 years old. I analyzed and understood my daddy. And then since those days, I've seen him maybe once a month at best. And what I realized was how weird is it to come from a man and not really know him the way I thought I knew him. I knew what he did to me. I knew his successes and failings as a teenager looking at an older man. But have I set about to know my father the way I know my coworkers, my neighbors, my family members now? What do I really, really know about my own dad? And I was shocked because this is my flesh and blood father, and I think I know him, but if you really press me, I would say, I don't think I really know my dad nearly as well as I presume to know my dad. How about you? I know you could describe your dad, but isn't that, let's be honest, when you're talking about your dad, isn't it quite often the 18-year-old you with lots of unfinished business still talking about a man who stopped being that man decades ago? And in your once, maybe every two or three month visits, you're only reinforcing what you thought you knew about him. And if we do that with our own flesh and blood fathers, can you imagine how often we're walking around with a picture of God that is totally different than what he really is like. Sometimes 
we characterize God by the way he makes us feel, not by what he says is in his heart. There are times when my children punish themselves through me, and I'm not even mad at them. They're like, Dad's so mad at me. Why would you say that? Did I ever once express anger about this? No, but, you know, I just feel guilty. Then that's on you. Don't make it, don't make it like it's me. It's how I make you feel. But I get to tell you what I really feel for you. Do you want to know? When the Pharisees hear this part of the story, they just don't understand why the father is so willing to let this son come back. And as if to read their minds and answer that unspoken question, Jesus puts the focus finally on this last son. He brings this other son into the story. And here's a son coming back from a hard day's work. Probably the whole time he's shoveling and, and working the fields like my stupid brother's probably driving a Ferrari and at a nightclub and with the ladies and enjoying himself. And here I am stuck with double shares of work. And he's probably grumbling about the stupid brother who took his money and ran and left him at home with the parents. Some of you had that experience. You had to pull double shifts at the dry cleaners because your brother or your sister decided they had a life to live and they ran off and you were stuck with a family business, bussing tables, getting on that stepladder and hitting the button while the, the clothes rack, getting them their tickets. You know what I'm talking about. And why is every dry cleaner not air conditioned? They are so hot and you're sweating behind the counter going, I hate my brother. I hate my sister. That's what this guy was thinking all day long is why couldn't it have been me who ran for the hills, who took off to a far country? As he's coming home, though, something's different about the house. He hears a party going on and he asks one of the servants, what is this? Imagine how he feels when he says, oh, that. Your brother's come home. And your dad is so happy, he's throwing a huge party. You know that, that calf that we've been fattening with butter and Crisco? Looks so delicious, you just want to eat every time you walk past that cow. It's dead. It's on the table. It's steak. Mongolian beef. We're eating it, baby. Because your brother, who was in this faraway land, has come home. And we're so... What? He wasn't lost to us. The idiot took off. He gave dad the finger and took his money and decided to live for himself. And now he's back home and he's getting a party. And do you feel right away the inherent unfairness of the situation? Some of us, even now, hearing this story, have a hard time moving on. Because if, if this is an echo of our own life story, something is broken here. You should not be allowed to run away from the Father and be reinstated so easily. There should be hell to pay when you live like this. And yet the Father embraces with joy the prodigal who ran away. What it shows is on the one hand, the older brother was so different. He didn't ask for his inheritance. He made no demands. He never left his father's house. He never demanded any special treatment. And he worked diligently in his father's business. Everything he did on the outside makes him look like the better son. But as he reacts to his brother's return, his heart, his true heart, suddenly comes out. 
And what you realize is he is just as lost as his younger brother, but it's just a different kind of lost. In the same way that his younger brother thought that real life, real freedom was to get away from this father, the older brother who stuck around still didn't understand who his daddy was. And he says to his dad, look, by the way, the way that sounds in English sounds kind of disrespectful. In the original language, it is just laden with disrespect. All pretense is thrown out the window. Any respect, any manners, he goes, Daddy, you idiot! Look! This makes no sense. I'm ticked off. I'm not going to say yes, sir, no, sir. I'm just going to tell you how it is. He might have even called his dad by his first name. Listen, Mike! you got to listen to me. You're being a fool. This boy is playing you. He has squandered everything on prostitutes, and you're giving him a party. It's like you're rewarding him for doing this. And then listen to how he talks about himself. This is where he really shows his hand. He says, these many years I have served you. That sounds so nice, but the the better translation is I have slaved away for you these many years. It's very clear language. I have been toiling and slaving away for you for these many years, and yet you never gave me even a young goat. If you're throwing a party, okay, if you're throwing a party, A fattened calf is Hong Kong steak. A young goat is sweet and sour chicken, all right? He says, I never asked you for much, but all these years I've been toiling away for you. You didn't even give me a little bit. And this guy gets everything. Do you see how distorted his view of his father is and how distorted his view of himself is? Nobody told him to stay and be a slave. He had the privilege of working as a part of his dad's household. And this was not even his father's estate anymore. He had already received his two-thirds of his father's estate. He was working for himself. It was his business, his land, his farm to command. And yet it's clear that the way he worked for his dad was never out of joy or ownership or identification but out of duty and bitterness and obligation. Yes, he worked hard, but he never worked hard because he loved and understood his father. He worked hard because he believed that's all that was ever expected of him. And he put that on his dad. He said, you made me slave like this for you. And as far as, when did I ever do that? When did I ever treat you like a servant in my house? You were always my son. If you live like a slave, it was because you thought like a slave. You have always been my son. And that's the great irony. The younger prodigal is lost and he gives up sonship and decides to come home begging for a position as a slave. The older brother was home all the while acting like a slave and losing out on the joy of sonship. Both of these brothers were lost. They were just lost in very different ways. And perhaps the greatest sign of how little he understood his father was when he thought about his brother. He won't even call him my brother. He says, when this son of yours, he's disowned him. He he wants nothing to do with him. When he looks at this brother, all he sees is what his brother has done. He cannot see that this is his blood. 
If he understood his father, even if he didn't care for his brother, he would understand what this boy means to his dad, but he cannot because he is so far removed from the heart of his father. You know, A.W. Tozer, in the beginning of his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, makes this very interesting statement. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Have you got to chew on that for a little bit? What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And here's what he means by that. It's exactly what Jesus is illustrating in the story. What you think about yourself and what you think about other people is the evidence of what you ultimately think about God. Because you think about yourself in light of what you think God is like. And when you hate yourself, you also believe God hates you at that same moment. And when you're willing to walk in grace, that means you understand that God also is gracious to you. And perhaps more than how you see yourself, in the end, how you treat other people is the greatest proof of what you think of God. You can say you know God because you can recite Wayne Grudem's systematic theology by heart. And I would say you are not a person who knows God. You are God's biographer. You are God's journalist. To know God is to identify with the heart of God. And what Jesus is saying is you will know whether you've understood God by how you treat other people. The way you treat your friends, your lover, your children, your parents, when they are at their worst, that is precisely the moment where you're showing what you think of God. Here's the amazing thing about this God of ours. He just he keeps surprising me with how patient he is. Because I'm reading these stories and I'm so agitated. I want to rewrite it a little bit. I want to add a few pieces that just get it, put out the fire in my, in my belly. This older brother is standing at the door. He's going, I'm not even going to go in. I'm so mad right now that my dad's acting like this. This brother should not be having a party. And he's making a big deal. He's making it all about him. And there's a disturbance. I'm sure the servants have come into the party and said, "Uh, Sir, your older son is outside. He won't come in. Why not? He should be hosting with me. He's really upset with you. He's so mad that you've accepted your other son back. You know what I would have done? I'd be like, you know what? That's ridiculous. Tell him to come in here right now. We don't have time for this garbage. That's ridiculous. I will not have it. As long as he's in my house, he will come and be at this party with us. We'll talk about this later, but right now he needs to be inside the house. I would have summoned a servant to go fetch that boy. You know what this father does in the story? He leaves the party and he goes out to the gate. In the same way that he went after the one lost son, he's going after the other one. See, God doesn't look at the Pharisees and goes, what a bunch of jerks. They should stay outside. God loves all his children. It doesn't matter how you got yourself lost. If you're lost, God wants you home. That's all that this is about. It's a story about two sons who got themselves lost in very different ways. It's about a father who would not stay where he was, but went after his lost boys until they both came home. And he stands, he humbles himself. He goes out to the door and says, son, 
please don't do this. If it were you, I would do the same for you. You have always been here with me. I'm your father. You're my son. Come in and let's celebrate that your brother who was dead to us is alive after all. Come inside. I wonder if you identify with either of these sons today. I think some in this very room today, if you're honest about it, you're very close to that first son. You're feeling far from God, a little lost, a little unsure of which way is up. And you're finding it hard to think about coming home because you have a view of your father that's very wrong. You know, this lost son came home, but he really didn't understand what his dad was like because he expected his dad would never take him back as a son. He expected to be a servant. He came home, but he came home to a father who was different than the father he thought he knew. And maybe that describes you. If you're far from God, it's not because God has run from you. It's not because God is playing hide and seek with you. It is because often in our pride, in our wrong view of God, we make some very bad choices that take us away from him. We believe that true freedom is to be away from everybody who says anything to us about the choices we make. That real joy is living as we please with no one to say anything to us. And maybe that describes the way you're lost today. But maybe more of us are like the older son. And we've been hanging out in daddy's house a long time. But it's become really about obligation and duty for us. And maybe you've been close to God physically. But today, you realize you really don't know him at all. And the reason you feel so blah in your spirit is because you've developed a very distorted picture of what your heavenly father is like. <clears throat> this message for me, as I was preparing it this week, really made me think about ways in which I am more like that older brother than I wanted to admit. One of the occupational hazards of being a pastor is that it's really risky to get honest about the state of your faith. <laughs> because if I really start talking honestly, some days I just feel like I can't get up here and talk. And this week I had to confront the fact that in some ways I am really lost. I think that's why I'm not nearly as motivated to bring God's lost sons home as I used to be. I think that's why I'm so defeated by my own sin. So maybe God's talking to you. Maybe he's not. If not, in the last five minutes, enjoy a nice nap. But if God's talking to you, I think the one thing he's saying to all of us who may feel a little far from home is come home. 
being his son isn't about slaving away in his field for his sake. It's about actually knowing what he's like. Grasping just how different his heart is from ours and starting to understand that my father is very different than what I imagined him to be. And at the moment when I can't even accept myself, my father accepts me. When I can't forgive myself, my father will forgive me. You want to know where home is? It's where you go when you hit the bottom. It's the one place you can always go because Father will keep the door open no matter what. So why don't we just bow and let's pray together. For those who still are in this room and feel so little pull towards God, I want you to know this. That even when you feel that way, God is still looking for you. And we're confident that one of these days, he'll catch you. He loves you. He does not want you to be far from him. He is searching for you. But if you feel it, this sting of separation from God, and you know that the way you're living is not really living with the Father at all, and you want to come home, then here's a simple invitation with which we'll end our service. God says to you, come home. And you can. Right now. Just come home. You don't have to jump through a lot of hoops. You don't have to grovel. You just have to own the rebellion in your heart. And say, I'm coming. And I want you to know this. God will have you. He won't reject you. He won't push you away. He will have you if you come home. So let's just spend a couple minutes in our own voice praying to God. And for those who need to, receive the invitation to come home. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.